Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, Quillette editor, Quillette podcast host, and every once in a while, a Substacker. Substack, as you may know, is an online platform created in 2017 that basically combines the power of a blog with the monetizing aspect of a subscription newsletter. The service has not only become incredibly popular, but also quite profitable for its creators, who typically take a small cut of the online revenue that each Substack brings in. And one of the reasons why Substack is so popular is that its founders have a strong commitment to free speech. Now, my own hopelessly obscure Substack, which is devoted to board games, doesn't exactly test free speech boundaries. But when it comes to more sensitive topics, such as transgender issues, for instance, Substack's operators have generally taken the view that the best way to keep people well-informed isn't to censor unfashionable views, but to let each side have its say. In their view, this isn't just the best for readers and writers, but for society as a whole, since free speech policies help build up the public trust that otherwise can get eroded by clickbait media. In a January 26th manifesto titled, Society Has a Trust Problem, More Censorship Will Only Make It Worse, Substack's three founders wrote as follows. While the attention economy generates power from exploiting base impulses and moments of attention, a healthy information economy would derive power from the strength and quality of relationships that are built over time. The strength of these relationships would depend on the writers and readers not feeling like they're being cheated, coddled, or condescended to. Knowing that they are on a platform that defends freedom of expression can give writers and readers greater confidence that their information sources are not being manipulated in some shadowy way. To put it plainly, censorship of bad ideas makes people less likely, not more likely, to trust good ideas. End quote. In early February, I spoke with Substack CEO Chris Best about what he meant by this, about his plans for Substack, and about his cool new San Francisco office. We were also joined by his communications colleague, Helen Tobin, though you'll have to wait till the very end to hear what her voice sounds like. Just so listeners can get a sense of where you are, when I've done stories on on Microsoft and Facebook and Google, they kind of like have their own campuses. It's almost like when you're going to interview them, it's like little cities. And then I know that I've interviewed people who have garage startups where does your infrastructure now lie on the working out of your garage to Mountain View spectrum of grandiosity? Somewhere in between. Uh, we're no longer working out of uh, my apartment and we have some offices here in San Francisco. But it's not like Menlo Park, Facebook, where you're operating your own bike shop. No, nobody could accuse us of being nearly a city state. Which leads to this question Whenever I read the business section, you know, you hear about like Google executives or Facebook executives testifying before Congress or something about policy. Then below that, there's this very influential but smaller tier of like WordPress or Ghost or Medium or, you know, you're in that category now. What is your relationship 
in regard to the larger industry of policymaking, lobbying, is that something you've had to start to think about? It's something that we think about a fair amount and we think about it from our perspective of what are we trying to do with this platform we're trying to build and what do we think is the right thing to be bringing to the world? As far as I know, nobody's asking for our advice on uh, matters of making policy yet, which maybe we can appreciate. You do see, obviously, people freaking out about Substack policy in sort of egghead media circles. But is that kind of where a lot of these controversies remain at your scale point? The interesting thing about Facebook, et cetera, is part of it's the sheer size and part of it is kind of the the way that things play out on those platforms. I do think that the difference is not just one of size, but it's one of how visible is this conversation and what is the emergent effects that come out of it? Like Twitter, I think is a great example of a network that is, you know, it's a big, it's a big service and it's, you know, important and has lots of people on it, but it also at the same time looms incredibly large in the sort of minds of a lot of the intelligentsia, the media policymakers, there's this kind of sense of the prevailing attitude on Twitter kind of like shapes how people think public opinion is or how they think the intellectual climate is in a way that kind of becomes reality, I guess. And so, you know, we're not immune to that. We've definitely had these tempest things where people get up in arms about Substack. And, you know, when we started the company, we kind of knew that we were running towards the fire on this stuff. Like we're trying to make a platform that people can use to publish independently that puts writers and readers in charge. If we are lucky enough to be successful at what we're trying to do, the way to that success can only lie through being part of this broader conversation. So we can't complain about it too much, I guess. So here in Canada, where I live and work, we had a controversy because this big protest convoy that went to Ottawa. The truckers. The truckers, yeah. Uh, <laughs> What's going on uh, with the truckers? I've been seeing, I've, it's weird to see this as a Canadian expat living in San Francisco and just kind of being like, huh. They are funded or were funded by a GoFundMe page. You know, one of the most active parts of the pushback against this protest movement was, hey, let's, let's get them kicked off GoFundMe. That brings me to your model because you take a cut in, in many cases of people's income that they make through Substack. And so in a way, it's like different from Twitter because people go after Twitter and say, you're, you're publishing all this clickbait stuff. It's damaging. But Twitter's business model isn't, well, every time this tweet gets clicked on, we get half a penny or whatever. But in your case, if somebody comes on with something explosive that's clickbait, you're literally profiting from it. Is that something that gets used to, to attack your policies? I would almost say the reverse is more true. Like, you know, the idea that Twitter doesn't take a cut, the biggest difference is that Twitter takes a much larger cut. People on Twitter that that write things that are successful on Twitter don't see any of the money. Twitter, the platform, sees all of that. And part of the reason that we think the Substack model is worthwhile is that the things that tend to succeed on Substack are not necessarily the things that only drive clicks and, and engagement, right? Like there's this idea that people will hate read something in a way that they won't necessarily hate pay for it. If you look at like the, the distillation of a model where saying something that makes people mad and polarizes and drive clicks turns into money for the platform that sets up that model, I think that's a, a pretty fair description of the Twitters or the Facebooks of the world, and is, is arguably less the case about Substack. Mathematically, when you're talking about Twitter and you talk about the share of the revenue they're getting, you kind of get a divide by zero error because just most people get nothing. Yeah, basically. Was there one substantive issue that 
made you and Hamish McKenzie and Jairaj Sethi, I think I'm pronouncing those names correctly, that, that said, hey, we, we got to write a kind of manifesto about censorship. People will remember there was a big controversy. We don't have to get into it, but it was sort of about gender and, and trans stuff. But that was a while ago. Or maybe it was, was it the absence of something in the news that said, oh, now is a good time to do it so people won't interpret it as taking sides? We've written about this issue a few times. And the first time we wrote about it uh, is a piece that we actually linked to in the latest one, where it really was, we just knew this was something that we wanted to write down our thoughts about, both publicly to kind of get on the record about how and why we think about this, and also for ourselves to organize our own thinking about this, to put down what we think is right and what we think is important, kind of before it was inevitably put to the test in some high pressure situation. And that's actually been really valuable for us. It's helped us kind of have this document to look back at when it was like, when we had cooler heads, like how, what did we, what did we say that we believed? And this most recent one, it just, it, it feels to me like we're in flurry of increasing censorship in a bunch of different places. It feels like there's this, we're in this moment in the zeitgeist where there's this just desire to use the tool of shutting down things that you disagree with as part of like, you know, just a legitimate political program of ideas. You know, it wasn't any one thing in particular that made us want to do it, but it just felt like the heat on this is getting turned up and we wanted to reiterate our own thinking about this in advance of any of that. I think most people listening to this, certainly uh, you, will be familiar with the situation with Spotify and the controversy over Joe Rogan. What makes Spotify's situation challenging isn't just, well, you've got some artists who have said, we're going to take our material off Spotify unless you deplatform Rogan. You know, and this happened at Netflix too with Dave Chappelle. It becomes kind of like an HR issue because you've got people within the organization who will come to management and say, you know, I don't feel safe in this organization because you have Chappelle on or you have Rogan or whatnot. Putting aside the validity of those complaints, to a certain extent, when you publish something like this, is this indirectly a kind of HR document saying, look, if you want to come work for us, that's great. But on the way in, you should know that this is how we feel about things. I definitely wouldn't describe it as an HR document, but something that we do believe in on this issue and in general is just kind of like having a clear set of principles on knowing where we stand and kind of drawing a line around what are the things that Substack is seeking to advance and like, how do we want to go about doing this? And then just be really public about that to kind of like, just be open about it, put that out into the world. And one of the good reasons is that it helps people who might want to work at Substack decide for themselves if this is something they are excited about. And I think most importantly, it helps draw people who are, you know, excited about the things that we're that we're doing. Does it make it more difficult for you to give you a hypothetical? Let's say you had a staffer who had a blog which had stuff on it that you found really unsettling. And, it, you know, it didn't have anything to do with Substack. Does it make it more difficult for you? You know, you say in the piece, which, which I agree with, is, you know, there's no such thing as a zero censorship society. Like, there's always going to be some limits. Does, <laughs> did you think people are going to quote this back to me if I start putting limits on stuff they produce? I'm not sure that hypothetical is something that enters into it too much. But I do think that the general point of, hey, if we go out on the record and say, here are our principles, here are we think about these things, here's what we're, here's what you can count on us to do and to not do. Part of the value of that is exactly that. It ties our hands in a way where 
you know, people can come back to us and say, hey, you know, you said that you care about freedom of the press. You said that you care about this. It is kind of a commitment to what we believe and how we're going to behave. And that's part of the value of doing that, I think. One of the cautionary tales in this space is Gab. I guess you could call it a competitor to Twitter, which gradually became more right wing, more pro-Trump, even though I don't think Trump ever had an account on it got destroyed because it became a haven for some really extreme speech. Is one of the problems making free speech part of your brand that you're just always going to attract people who have been kicked off other brands and maybe in some cases for good reason? Like, is there a kind of balance of saying we're about free speech, but not so much at the core of our brand that we're going to act as a magnet for people who are, who are truly radicalized? I mean, this is how we think of it at Substack. We think that free speech is foundational principle for a liberal society. We think that it's a necessary ingredient in the kind of platform that we're wanting to make. But that's also not like, that's not the only thing about Substack. We think that free speech is is necessary, but not sufficient. And it's an important part of what we do. But, you know, as we laid out in the our very first post on this, our policy is not anything goes, we're going to allow anything. We have limits that we can impose at the extremes because we think that that's necessary to create the kind of platform that we we hope to. One of the other examples people give, it's not a media company, it's I guess finance company, it's Coinbase. The CEO came out and his approach was basically politics has nothing to do with who we are. Our mission is we do finance. What do you think of that approach where you just take almost a nihilistic view and say, I'm in the business of producing widgets? I don't know if it's totally fair to call the Coinbase approach nihilistic. You know, I think maybe the common thread that I would draw there is having a thoughtful stance about how we are and are not going to deal with this issue as a company, being clear about it and being willing to to stand up and create the environment that you want and being honest about it with other people and saying, you know, hey, if this is something, this is what we're about. This is something that if you agree with or want to be a part of this, you'll be excited here. And if there's something that you paid and don't want to be a part of, you won't like it here. I think that's actually good. I think that's something more companies can and should do and need to do in order to kind of like navigate the the crazy times we live in, almost independent of what that position is, right? Like if, if the position is something that I completely disagree with and you say, we're, we're only going to do politics at work and we're going to do it this way, even just like being clear about that and owning that that's the place you're trying to create has value to it, I think. I think Coinbase has been smart about it. And I mean, I mean, nihilistic in the best possible sense. Oh, of course. Good nihilism. Thank you. But although in this, in this essay, you talk about a problem that a lot of people have talked about, which is the problem of silos. But this approach you're describing, to some extent, it can create political silos defined by corporate brands, because there are, I'm sure there are some companies in San Francisco where corporate and social responsibility, social justice aspect is like a huge part of their recruiting for, for young employees, which is fine. I mean, if you have a company like Coinbase where, you know, under the heading corporate and social responsibility, it says, if you're reading this, Coinbase isn't for you, you're going to get probably a certain kind of person. Like, have you had difficulty? It's, it's been a, a while now since since Substack has had a posture of, of greater free speech. Does does this sometimes maybe inhibit you from recruiting everybody you'd like to recruit? 
I actually think it's it's an advantage in recruiting. And especially in when you're a startup that's trying to do something kind of like new. And- yeah, you're not a startup anymore. You can't play that card. You've like, you know, you're making money hand over fist. And <laughs> no, no one's buying the startup thing anymore. Nice, is, nice uh, of you to say. I mean, and we're, we're much bigger than we are. When I think we're 80 people now. And we, you and I started talking, we were three of us or something. Um, but, you know, 80 people is still relatively small in the, in the grand and scheme of these things. We're hiring, by the way, if anyone's listening. And I think that being but able that's to- bigger than a lot of just to interrupt my background is newspaper journalism. 80 people is bigger than a lot of the editorial staff of a lot of largish urban newspapers. I agree that maybe 20 years ago, if you're in the media space, 80 isn't a lot. That's not insubstantial. Yeah, it's getting there. And you know, there's tens of thousands of writers across a million paying subscribers not too long ago. You know, we're not at Facebook scale, but we're onto something, I think. And I think being clear about what you're what you're out to do, like helping people decide for themselves if that's something they want to be a part of, and then selectively pulling people that do want to be a part of it is actually an advantage. If you're kind of the same as every other company, it's actually tough to attract people that are genuinely passionate about what you're doing. So it's been about two years since the COVID pandemic began. When it started, a lot of us found it unusual to replace in-person services like therapy with connections we made over the phone or the internet. But two years later, no one finds that unusual anymore. It's part of our day-to-day life. Which brings me to one of our commercial supporters, BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At betterhelp.com, that's H-E-L-P, you can connect with a professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment according to your own schedule using either secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Whatever you share is, of course, strictly confidential. And while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in less than 24 hours. BetterHelp's network contains thousands of licensed therapists, and you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. And as people who've used the service know, there's actually a few advantages associated with online therapy services. There's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. And it's just more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Join the many others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp.com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code Quillette with two L's and two T's and an E at the end. Just go to BetterHelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. In your essay, you give, I think, what a philosophy major might call a consequentialist argument for free speech. <laughs> I, I warned you this was a black turtleneck podcast. You're talking about if, if you try and suppress speech, it actually just lowers trust, right? I've seen this argument made before. The one thing that I'm not crazy about is it's an evidence-based consequentialist argument. So if somebody came forward and said, hey, I have this data that shows that in Belarus where they censor everything... Uh, there's a high degree of trust for the autocratic regime. That's not true, but I'd have to apply this logic and say, well, I guess we're going to start censoring stuff. There's also, you know, in the United States where you could draw a line between certain kinds of speech and things like, I don't know, gun violence and political radicalism. Are you nervous about if somebody comes forth with different kinds of data, then maybe your principles get challenged? That's an interesting philosophical objection. I guess the way that I think about this for myself is I'm kind of a, this is going to sound hokey, but maybe a freedom loving pragmatist. Like I, I both, I think that 
you know, freedom of speech and freedom in general is kind of a, a terminal good. It's something that I think is important. And if I had to like, you know, rate it among a plurality of human values, I would rate it quite highly. And I'm also, you know, if we're playing amateur philosopher, I believe in the is ought distinction or something. You're at the edge of my, yeah. at the yeah, edge yeah. of my actual philosophical uh-huh. things. I'm like, look, I think, I think, I think freedom is a good thing. Um, and also I think that it is a practical tool that can have, and has been shown to have really good consequences uh, in some circumstances. And the fact that that second thing exists allows me to make common cause with people who might not necessarily value the things that I value, you know, as directly, right? If, if I think that being able to express oneself and, and say what say what's on your mind and communicate freely is just a good thing in and of itself, even if there were no practical benefits, which I do believe, if we can argue that, look, there, there's also a heap of practical benefits in the long run. And then even if that's something that's less important to you, this should still be a program that matters. I think that's a valid kind of an argument to be able to make. And it's important to be able to take a clear eyed look at the actual consequences that your your preferred policies have. I mean, this is my big critique in this piece, our big critique in this piece of the censorship forward position is that it's it makes these arguments like, oh, we have to shut this down, we have to shut this down, and doesn't really reckon with whether that helps or hurts. And I think there's a really strong case to be made that it doesn't doesn't actually achieve its own stated ends, which should matter at the margin, at least. It's a display of power. Absolutely. You know, if you and I are arguing whether carrots are are better than celery, and I'm pro-carrot, I'm able to get that powers that be to shut down your Celery World blog. It's not going to make people not like celery. It's going to show people who's boss. It might even make celery cool, but in the meantime... My stock rises, because I've, I've, sh- I've shown the world who's in charge, that I, I've got the whip hand. And, and I think a lot of this, people justify a lot of the censorship stuff on the basis of, you know, we have to protect everybody from this stuff. But a lot of it is, it's a, it's a political power play, because the ability to impose your will on others is, it's a mark of status. And you can see this, you, you can see this in the various, you know, defenses and anti-defenses of free speech over time, where there's a real tendency where whoever feels like they're they're not in power are the ones that are the most ardent defenders of freedom of speech. Oh, 100%. As, as soon as they get power, they're like, well, but we doesn't apply to the bad people who we obviously must censor. I'm older than you. I remember the Reagan era. And yeah, I mean, it was, if you were an artist, you were fighting against right-wing censorship. My earliest memories of this were in the Iraq war era, where there was a moment there where being kind of like anything other than fervently, even for, cause I was growing up in Canada, but there you could still sense this climate in the U S that if you were like, not on team, we got to do this thing. You're kind of like going to get it. Like, it's not even your right or wrong, but it's just like, you're, you're, you're by even expressing that view, you're inviting trouble onto yourself. And that's how the, that, that kind of climate that you create with that is how insane things happen. Because even if you start out with a good proposition, you're fighting something that's actually bad, and then you know you silence dissent and you show that you have this power to like, you know, stop people from questioning the program, the program can just go bonkers, right? Even the, a good, well-intentioned program that's designed to like fight something genuinely bad can go off the rails. And it's, it's why the freedom of speech thing is not like a, you know, not only a principled thing, I think it's actually of incredible pragmatic value in a free society. One way of imposing checks and balances on this sort of out of control 
propagation mechanic you're talking about is to have people expose themselves to different viewpoints. And, you know, as I was reading your piece, you were talking about the pluralistic approach to content on Substack. And, and it's, it's absolutely true that if one were to go to a random Substack, you know, who knows what you're going to find. The problem is, and I'm not sure it's avoidable, is that when people come to Substack, they're not coming to generic Substack. They're coming to Celery Substack or Carrot Substack. Is there any way to get people coming to one Substack to kind of migrate a little and, and, and graze other content? Because... I mean, as much as, as you're committed to pluralism, I'm guessing at the end of the day, most people come to drill down into one particular kind of content, and it's hard to migrate them to different sorts of, of feeds. It's actually a really interesting question. One of the things that I find most heartening about behavior that I do see on Substack is there is a lot of evidence that you know people seek out the, the voices and the things they find interesting and they care about and they choose what to subscribe to. You know, subjects about putting writers and readers in charge. The reader part of that is you choose what to subscribe to. You don't have to subscribe to people you don't find interesting or good. There is a lot of evidence that people subscribe to things they don't necessarily agree with. And I see this a lot. If you, somebody will launch their paid subscription, you'll see people in the comments showing up and saying like, hey, you know, I, you drive me crazy a large fraction of the time and I don't agree with the takes on here. But I find this perspective worthwhile and I think you're acting in good faith and I find this like stretches my thinking and adds something to my world. And I do think that left to their own devices, that's a, a choice that many people will make for themselves if they're making the choice kind of as their best self. And if anything, it's the reverse that can pull away from that. If you compare that, contrast that to your Twitter feed or your YouTube feed, where it's not sitting there and asking you, hey, would you like to see a diverse range of viewpoints that that's gonna expand your horizons? But instead it just says, tented fingers, I know what you're going to click on. It's going to be this and this and this. That's actually the thing that pulls most sternly into the, the rabbit hole. People, when left to their own choice, will seek out different opinions. They will seek out different viewpoints. That's not infinite, right? You know, people aren't going to like sign up for things that they absolutely hate and read them day after day in case they eventually become convinced. But we kind of think, you know, if we can let you make the choice for yourself and choose by your own lights to kind of like build the media diet that you think is going to be best for you. That's actually a pretty good end in and of itself. And people will choose to read things that aren't just telling them what they already think. It's just taken for granted that when, when a person starts a company like yours, the ethos of the internet is bigger is better. So you started with eight people. Now you have 80. One day you'll have 800. One day you'll have 8,000. And yet, as we've talked about before, the bigger the internet company, the bigger the headaches. When you look at Facebook executives or Google executives, uh, in the public eye, they don't, they don't look like happy people. Is there a point at which you don't want to get bigger? Because if you get bigger, then you become the face of your medium to lawmakers, then defines your professional role, that you're no longer actually doing what you originally came to do. Instead, you're just constantly defending your prerogative to do what it is you came to do. Like, how big do you want Substack to be? I want Substack to be really big. And the reason I want it to be big is because I think the thing that we set out to build is worthwhile. Um, and this is part of the reason that I, I, this is more personally, but like I'm personally interested in working on this in the first place. I kind of have this theory that, you know, you should either, at least for myself, I'm the kind of person that I want to work on something that I can become completely wrapped up in uh, or just chill, <laughs> like not, not work that hard on something. And so if I'm going to work on something that's going to take up a substantial fraction of my professional life, 
I want it to be something that I believe in and something that I think can make a positive difference in the world. And I think the way to do that for Substack is to create as big a space as possible. This alternate universe we're creating on the internet with different laws of physics, where you know writers and readers are in charge, where you subscribe directly to people, where the incentive structures are totally different, where you can build trust relationships. That thing is worth making exist. And all of the problems that come with bringing that into the world, I don't enjoy them. I'm not like, you know, I'm not, there are people that love getting roasted on Twitter because it's attention and that's great or love, you know, want to be hauled on TV or whatever. I don't love any of those things, but I'm willing to do them if it's the, the price of creating something that matters. Uh, and so I, and I, I don't feel like I can very well complain if, you know, in the happy path, Substack continues on this successful trajectory we've been on. And, you know, it's a pain in my butt that, you know, people ask me to justify what we're doing to government or anything. I think that's, that's kind of fair enough. Okay. Last question. I just want to, I just want to see how in touch or out of touch I am with Silicon Valley or San Francisco stereotypes. Because <laughs> you, you said you're building new offices. We have some offices in a building. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask you questions about whether these these elements are contained within your office, okay? Okay. Mindfulness room. No. Foosball table. Nope. Dedicated yoga area. Definitely not. A zone devoted to those with aromatic sensitivities. <laughs> no. What percentage of your workforce uses standing desks? Okay. All the desks are sit-stand. So one could stand if one wanted to at all of the desks. I feel like there's maybe one or two people that have ever done that, but it is possible. We have fancy desks for this purpose. All right. I'll allow that. Chris Best is CEO of Substack. Thank you so much for being on the Colette podcast. Thank you for having me. Helen, thanks for- Yeah, thanks for giving us ideas for new office features. I'll talk to- <laughs> We have a kombucha tap. I was just waiting for you to ask about kombucha. <laughs> there's no such thing as kombucha. If you would like to support Colette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.